Thank you, Jenny. And uh, there's so many things we need to thank you for for the last 12 years and need time to kind of process that and think of some of those things. And uh, do take the opportunity to spend time with Jenny and uh, to bless her. And then we want to, near the end of the year, really celebrate uh, all she's been to us for the love that she's shared and the, the time and hours and prayers that she's poured into people. And we're looking at 2 Corinthians, and there's a verse a bit earlier in the book, in chapter 4. Uh, and Paul says this, We preach Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. It's not the passage for today, but I just felt that said something from this book about Jenny, that she wants everyone to know that she knows herself, that Jesus is Lord And she's been a very, very willing servant. She's not pushing herself forward. She's saying, Jesus is Lord, and I'm here to serve you. And she's doing it for Jesus' sake, not for her own glory, not even for your sake, uh, but doing it for Jesus' sake, out of love for him. And she's been uh, wonderfully doing that for, for so long. I thought we needed to lighten the mood. So before we look at the, the passage, uh, we've just got a brief time today. Uh, but uh, Yvonne's uh, delivered our youngest back to university. So this morning she dropped him off in Hull. And I saw that Hull had got into the news this week uh, because uh, a teenager threatened to stab his dad uh, in Hull. Uh, and uh, he was verbally abusive, he got a knife out ready to stab his dad, and he was taken to court. And what would provoke that in, in a place like Hull, that kind of threats of violence and court case that's come up? His dad served him a salad for dinner. <laughs> that seems to have been the thing. So in Hull, that, uh, that is, is outrageous provoked that action, provoked a court case that uh, a lad, a 19-year-old from Hull, was served salad for dinner. Uh, and his, his surname's Pooley as well, which is a nice touch for some of us. So um, we know a Pooley in church. We're doing 2 Corinthians, and uh, we've got to just a few verses at the end of chapter 6. And I had Alison Smith lined up to speak on this, but she had to pull out because she was needed in prison today. So hopefully she'll come later in the autumn. So I got it. Uh, Let's read it quickly. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. And he says, I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So it's a short passage, and time is short today, so that's appropriate. And there's one appeal, that first line, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. And that's the kind of message that Paul wanted to get across, that one simple thing. And he backs it up by some contrasts, 
and I've put those out on this next page here. And he presents it as polar opposites. So you can be righteous and living in the light with Christ, having faith and worshipping as part of God's holy temple as a believer. Or you can be wicked or lawless, in darkness, unbelieving, and worshipping in the temple of idols. So there's a real contrast there. And Paul's bigging up the difference it makes to be a believer, to be in relationship with God. And he's really putting that to the fore. And he's presenting the opposite of of darkness and uh, living under the power of Satan. Belial is a Hebrew word that... uh, uh, refers to Satan is used as the, uh, a word to represent him. And then the last part of the passage, we won't go uh, into all this, this section. It's further backed up by some scripture references from what we call the Old Testament. And they refer to God's people obeying him, worshipping him. And they've been away in exile And God brings them back, and he says, I brought you back into my temple. I'm going to be with you. So it's really, really important that you're committed to me and you're holy because my presence is going to be with you again. And Paul finishes up by referring to those passages from the Bible. So there's a big separation there, but the the phrase is... Don't be yoked together with unbelievers. Have you heard that phrase before? You heard that? And probably if you've heard it, people have said it means don't marry a non-Christian. Have you heard people say that from that phrase? It doesn't actually say it explicitly. Uh, Does it mean it? That's something we need to think about. So that's the injunction. Don't be yoked together with an unbeliever. What does it mean? Let's look at the the context quickly, and it's always important to look at the context of any passage to help you get the meaning. And if you think back, we've been looking at 2 Corinthians. Paul arrived in Corinth, uh, a very pagan uh, society and culture, worshipping idols and having values that are a million miles away from Jesus' values. And a newish church has been started in that quite hostile pagan culture. And he wants them to be true to God. He doesn't want them to lose their faith. He doesn't want the church to die. So that's the kind of context. And when you look at the context of the Bible, we try and build a bridge to, to here today. Are we in that context? Are we one church in the city under threat and compromise? Probably not true of us today in one sense. We're not exactly the same. There's not only one church in town, there's probably something like 250 churches in Lewisham Borough alone, so seven or 8,000 churches in London. And maybe we don't operate in quite such a hostile culture as they did in Corinth, but there is a real danger of people walking away from faith today. You can't say the church is massively expanding. New people are coming to Christ every day, but church numbers are going down. And it's a particular challenge, I think, in our culture for younger people. And I've probably said this once or twice before, I met a woman that works with Fusion, who worked with university students, and they did a survey. And uh, students aged 18 to 21 that are actively involved in church, it doesn't mean they've got, it doesn't include people that have got faith and are not regular churchgoers, 
But that age group that are actively involved in church represents 1% of their age group. And uh, she told the story of the lost sheep. She said the 99 are not in the fold. The 99 are out of the fold in that age group. Now, a number of them have got Christian background. A number of them got real faith. But a small percentage actively engaged in church. So there's, while we're not the kind of one church in our whole existence and the faith in this city rests on us, there is still a vulnerability there's no room for complacency. We've got to rise up and be the ecclesia, God's called out people. And it's important that we stay holy and faithful to him. And the verse that this chapter starts with, we looked at last week, as God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. And that's important. We can let that go. God has saved us. And he wants us to live fruitful lives. And Paul's worried for the church that they'll turn away from God and the work will be in vain and uh, Jesus' sacrifice will be in vain. And he's really committed for them to stay faithful and not throw away their faith. And as I said again last week, Paul really, really appreciated the fact of Jesus' sacrifice at his death on the cross. He knew from meeting Jesus, he'd seen him after his resurrection and he knew and saw the scars on his hands and on his side and on his feet. He knew how he'd given his life for us, how we were separated from God, how we were trapped by sin and evil and how Jesus had gone to the cross and paid the price to set us free. Paul knew the power and importance of that. And it's important that the church don't throw that away and turn their backs on Jesus. And it's important for us to be reminded where we gather together that Jesus loved me and he died for me. And that's so crucial. And then Paul himself had his own life transformed. And I think Paul's saying that knowing Jesus is the most important thing. Having eternal life is the most important thing. In the whole of this world. Having God's spirit in you. Is so wonderful. The living God living inside you. Prioritize that. Don't jeopardize it. Don't throw it away. Put Jesus first. Seek first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness. And I think whatever. Don't be unequally yoked means. There's something around appreciating your faith appreciating Jesus' sacrifice for you and prioritizing that in your life. And I'm so glad we sang, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. And we can do that in times we feel blessed and we can do that in times we feel under pressure and things are going wrong for us. But it's so important to turn our eyes on him. Now we can say, well, I'm very busy. I've got loads to do. I've got to work hard to pay the bills. I've got loads of responsibilities. And then maybe at the end of the day, when I've done all those things, I'll try and squeeze God into my life. Five minutes before I fall asleep. But that's not what Paul lives for. That's not the message of Jesus. It's about prioritizing him. And the secret is to put God first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and the things you need will be added. 
we need to make sure, I need to make sure that I'm reprioritizing to consciously put him first, not I'm going to do all I can to get the things I need and try and squeeze God in at the end. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then he will provide the things you need. And I wasn't very blessed when Jenny told me she was leaving. But I know that she's not doing it out of spite. She's not totally fed up with you. She's doing it because she is seeking God and putting him first and trying to hear from him and follow him. And I'm like saying, God, do you know what you're doing? I'm not sure about this, but I trust Jenny that she's been seeking God and putting him first. And so we gladly release her to pursue what God's called her to. So I think this not being unequally yoked thing must be about guarding the fact that God is first in your life, appreciating his death and sacrifice for you, and avoiding things that are going to damage or destroy your spiritual life. And if your spiritual life is damaged or destroyed, that's going to have a negative impact on the whole of your life. So it must have something to do with that. And the question, I think, in a Jenny and I are Christian workers. You can think we spend all the time worshipping God. We get busy and distracted in hundreds of things. So we need to prioritise God. And uh, just in the summer, I managed to kind of drive out for a day and just walk around and seek God and get away from the busyness of London and the busyness of stuff that needs doing around church. And that was so crucial to reprioritise in that way. Find an hour You may be the kind of person that locks yourself away in a room and connects with God in that way. You may be the kind of person that needs to get out and walk in a park or in the countryside and connect with God in that way. But make the effort, find the time to prioritize him. Is nurturing my relationship with God at the top of my agenda? Or honestly, is it near the bottom? And I need to reorientate whatever pressures there are on my life. So what's this yoke thing? How many of you have seen a yoke in the last week? I don't mean the eggy variety. There's a yoke. You familiar with yokes? So not many of us see them. There's over 50 references to yokes in the Bible. Uh, less than half of them are to the physical contraption that a yoke is. Uh, a wooden bar linking animals together to do things like ploughing. Over half the references are figurative. So sin can be like a yoke controlling us and trapping us and pressurizing us. But Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's a calling from God and a purpose that God can give us that fits us. And that idea of yoke being easy doesn't mean it, there's no pressure on you. It means it more it fits properly on you. And you can feel a weight and a pressure for the things that God's called you to do. But if he's gifted you and called you, it fits. It won't crush you. It may still be a weight and a burden to carry, but it fits you and God's called you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And a true companion in ministry... In uh, Philippians 4, Paul talks about them as a yoke fellow. So in some ways I've been yoked together with Jenny over the last 12 years, and that's been wonderful. And a a little blessed thought I had this week is Jesus obviously saw this. He was great at using illustrations 
from around him. But growing up as a carpenter, he probably made them. So this image is very precious. He knew how to make it and how to make it fit and how to make it perfect. So when you yoke together, you yoke two similar animals. And that's very important. I I like the expression on their faces. I think it's great. So I don't know if you met many in India. See a few cows. When we saw cows, they seemed to be randomly just at the side of the road, even in the middle of the busy highway. Okay, so unequally yoked. wonderful picture you get anything on the internet what would happen if you were wanting to say plow a field with those it wouldn't go well well. what might happen (laughs) yeah one would be kind of trying to push ahead and maybe feel restricted the other one would be dragging along behind how would the the lines go in the plowing kind of go over one side to the stronger animal. You can imagine looking down at that field afterwards. There'd be stop and start and going all over the place. It would be absolute chaos. And there's something we need to learn from that. We don't want the fields of work that we do for God, the field we, we march through or walk through in life, to be chaotic and a complete mess. We don't want to be pulling at a different pace. We don't want... It's not that the stronger one's going to be held back and frustrated, but it's not fair on the weaker animal as well. They're going to be dragged along. or um, it's, it's a mess. So that's why it's an important thing. Unequally yoked doesn't work very well and doesn't bring good results. So what's the application? Does that mean avoid all unbelievers? And stay away from people that might you know, disturb you in some way or say the wrong thing. I don't think it does. And Paul's already dealt with that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll just read this through quickly. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. And so he's not trying to take us out of the world and remove us from people. That's the reality of life. And he wants us in there to make a difference and to shine a light. But he does want people in church not just to be happy that people are claiming to be a good, faithful Christian and they're uh, living in the opposite way to what Jesus wants. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? But are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. So it's actually not our role to go around judging people and condemning people outside the church. We're there to love them and to show Jesus to them. But it is our job to to want the church to be the kind of place where God can presence himself so we get it right. And he doesn't want us to be removed from the world. Church is not meant to be a holy huddle, is it, at all. I see Peter Lexin sitting there. He's always good to pick on. And uh, he's got a gift for stand-up comedy. 
And so he's out in the world, rubbing shoulders with all these stand-up comedians. And some of them are really nice. Some of them you wouldn't want to be in their presence, kind of imbibing all their stuff. But I don't think this passage is saying, avoid all that stuff. I think it's encouraging us to be out in the world, rubbing shoulders with all sorts of people and being different. I think Pete made a slight mistake of inviting me and Yvonne uh, at first stand-up uh, thing in Forest Hill, uh, the pub that used to be called The Hob. And you get all these acts on. Pete was one of the acts. It was great. Uh, Yvonne thought Pete was wonderful. But some of the other guys were pretty bad. And uh, One of them started by joking about Madeleine McCann and it went downhill from there. And there was another guy that was so bad, I just thought, I wish some people in white coats would come from the Maudsley Hospital and take this guy away. He really is appalling. But it's good for us to be in places to make a difference. And I'm really blessed with people that Pete knows and blessed with what he's brought to the church from the comedy scene. And like Paul Glennie down the gym, I'm sure he hears lots of choice stuff in the sauna after his workout, but he's there as a light and a witness. So God's not calling us out of the world. But he doesn't want us to be wrapped up in a bubble. Jesus said, as the Father sends me, so I send you. But he doesn't want us to be there in the kind of way that we get corrupted. And if we're too weak, then we need to be careful about where we spend our time and who we're with. If we're weak in our faith, if we're vulnerable, then we need to be really careful of what we expose ourselves to. And I've talked to prisoners who've got out of jail, and it's really hard if they just go back home and they're with the mates they had before doing the things they had. It's very hard to break free, and often they need a different uh, place to, an environment to be in. And the team were overseas working with people that had come off heroin. And some of those guys need a season away from all of that stuff so they can get clear and they can get sorted. And it's really important we get the balance right. We don't withdraw from the world, but we don't make ourselves totally vulnerable. And I thought of the story, you know the story of the prodigal son? I think it's really helpful for us. There's three main characters. You've got the son that wants the inheritance, and he goes off and wastes all his money and getting drunk and all that kind of stuff. And we don't want to be like that. We don't want to just dissipate and waste our lives. But the next character is his elder brother. And if we think we've got to be like that, so we don't want to be the son that wastes everything and drifted away, we should be an elder brother. But he was self-righteous, he was joyless, he hated his brother, he was uncaring, he was kind of holier than thou. And so if we're going to live for Jesus, that's not what we want to be either. And actually Jesus had found, it, found it much easier with people that kind of seemed to have wasted up their lives and messed up, and then their hearts were open to God and they came to him. He found that easier to deal with than the people that were self-righteous. But the person we want to model ourselves in on that story is the father. He's loving, he's releasing his son to do whatever he wants, but he's waiting for him, he's probably praying, he's patient. And then he's generous and joyful and full of faith for his son. And that's the kind of attitude we, we want when we go out into the world. Let's not just 
go and blend in completely inconspicuously. Let's not go out and judge and be full of ourselves and self-important and self-righteous. But let's interact with the world like a loving father, loving, caring, wanting people to come and know the power of God, rejoicing when their lives are turned around, full of generosity and full of joy. That's how we're meant to interact with the world. So finishing up, not unequally yoked, be not yoked unequally together with unbelievers. What does it mean? It doesn't actually specify any one thing. So if people says it means don't marry a non-Christian, it doesn't explicitly say that. And it's not limited to that. It can apply to lots of different things. So what could it mean? Obviously, it's something around being strongly bound with people or things that will weaken or compromise your faith or witness. Bound together with people or things that will weaken you and turn you away from God and compromise your faith or your witness. And one application is possibly in business. And a guy used to work with me years ago called Matt. And uh, he uh, left school at 16, started in business, and moved into a new business, a mobile phone business, years and years ago. And he wasn't just working for a big company. He was a partner. Two of them started this business. But he got increasingly uncomfortable. And he felt, it's just the two of us running this two-man business. And the kind of things and tactics... Uh, that my business partner wants to bring into the business to drum up uh, the best business we can get and make the most money we can. I just can't go along with that. And so in that situation, he didn't want to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever, and he, he stepped out of business, just the, the direction it was going and the tactics they were using and their degree of integrity and honesty. He couldn't in all conscience go along with that as a Christian. And so he stepped out of that business, and now he's a Baptist pastor. I remember I used to work for a bank, and uh, the bank bought out a bank in in South America. And a friend of mine had done a lot of uh, studying in South America and was really concerned with regimes uh, on that part of the, the continent and how the bank had kind of complicit and was funding those regimes. So he was agonizing about that. It wasn't just a two man business. But she, it kind of pricked her conscience, should I stay working for an organization that I know is doing this stuff? Now, it's a balance, isn't it? If you want to be totally clean, they call it filthy lucre, you probably have to leave the world entirely for money to be totally clean. But it's, it's an issue. And if she felt she, her faith was being compromised by working for that particular organization, then in integrity she should move on. I think back in in the time of Paul, maybe it was something to do with false teaching. It was a real danger in the church that people would come in and not teach the true gospel and lead people astray. And maybe that's an issue today. And you've got a responsibility if you go along to church or you watch stuff on the internet or you've got God TV on, discern what's being preached. Does that show the heart and love of Jesus? Or is that something I need to switch off and not go with? And maybe Paul was concerned they'd welcome in false teachers and then whether quickly or subtly their faith would be changed and turned and they'd be lost to God. So that's another application.
And syncretism is an issue, isn't it? If you're on the, the mission field, uh, do you blend in with culture? Do you try and take a bit of my animist religion or my other religion, mix it with Christianity and try and come up with something that I kind of fit in, uh, but I've still got a bit of Jesus? That's a real issue in mission work, and we need to think about that. Don't be yoked together with unbelievers. How much do we compromise and I think Patrick Reagan, who ran XLP, had a good phrase. He talked about being culturally engaged but morally distinct. And that's really important. He, he challenged the church and said, so often we're morally similar and culturally really weird to the world. And that's not helpful at all. But let's work out how to be culturally engaged, linked in with the world, living in the real world, but at the same time being morally distinct because of our love for God and our following of him. But finally, if it's a close, permanent relationship or activity that uh, this refers to, maybe it could be referring to marriage. or And that's certainly a, a very close, long-term relationship. And it doesn't explicitly say, don't marry an unbeliever, but we need to think very carefully. There are dangers in taking that course if you're already married Paul's already made it very clear that you're not to break off your marriage on the basis of faith God honors the covenant of marriage so if you are married he wants you to work at it and stay married and he says who knows your faith may impact your partner and at some point in the future they may come to the Lord so it's not saying that but if you're not in a committed relationship You need to weigh it up very carefully. It doesn't explicitly say, don't marry an unbeliever. But there is a danger in being married in that way that your faith might weaken. There's danger your participation in church may be more difficult and more sporadic. It may be harder to commit to being part of church and using your gifts to bless the body if you're in that kind of marriage. And it'll certainly be harder to be a leader in the church, if God's called you to be that way, you'll find you're not equally yoked and it, it jars. So it's not, a, it's not a ban and it's not an absolute thing, but Paul's overall thing is the priority is knowing Jesus, loving Jesus, appreciating him and putting that first in your life. So the things that are going to weaken your faith, the things that are going to damage your faith, the things that are going to spoil your witness. We need to say, I don't want to embrace those things. I want to sow to the Spirit. I want to put Jesus first. I want to look to him. And I know our time's gone, but I don't know if it's possible to finish with a song of worship. And as we do, let's think, how would this apply to me? And I think there's, there's some way that it would How am I compromising my faith? Am I being salt and light in the world or am I completely inconspicuous? Or am I someone that is prioritizing Jesus and getting closer to him and honoring him with the things that I do and say? Let's stand and sing this final song. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it speaks to us. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you will continue to speak to us through your word and know how we can apply this to our lives. How am I unequally yoked? How am I doing things 
that aren't the most helpful and how can I be yoked together with others in such a positive way that we're seeing loads of the love of God and loads of the kingdom of Jesus in this world. Thank you, Lord. Help us to apply this to ourselves.